Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie this is Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll begin today with uh, the cost of uh, developing the National Children's Hospital. It's very dear, isn't it? Well, yes, but you knew that. We've known for some time the cost has gone from around 800 million five years ago to nearly a billion two years ago and to around 1.4 billion today. Add in the cost of equipping the hospital and uh, the computers and it's over 1.7 billion euro. Mad as that is, it could end up even more expensive than that, maybe two billion, maybe more. It's a debacle. Well, the Taoiseach says it's a bit of a debacle. So yesterday was an opportunity to find out why. The man who holds the government's purse strings spent six hours in front of two Oireachtas committees taking questions from TDs and senators about the scandal. What did we learn? Not a lot. The Secretary-General of the Department of Public Expenditure was in front of the Finance Committee yesterday afternoon and yesterday morning Robert Watt appeared before the mob in the Public Accounts Committee where he was accused of doing a Harvey Smith. Harvey Smith is notoriously remembered for giving two fingers. David Cullinan is a Sinn Féin TD and a member of the Public Accounts Committee. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. The Irish Examiner, according to Fikra O'Kioni, heard Mr Watt make this comment uh, telling Sean Fleming, the chair of the committee, that he needed to control the mob. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, you were told about this and asked for uh, a, a clarification. You got a, an apology, I'm told. Uh, but was it a, an apology or did Robert Watt do a Karen Bradley? Well, first of all, I think he gave half an apology. There wasn't a full acceptance on his part that he used the word uh, mob. He said, if I did use the word, then I uh, apologise. Um, uh, but... Um, I think that the term itself was completely and absolutely unacceptable to describe the Public Accounts Committee as a mob and elected representatives who have a clear job to do to hold these accounting officers to account to ensure that we get answers to questions in relation to very serious issues like the overspend of the National Children's Hospital. Uh, the Public Accounts Committee is made up of people who are elected by the people. Uh, accounting officers are not. They're appointed into their positions. I respect them as individuals. I respect their positions. Um, and I uh, pay all accounting officers and senior civil servants to respect that they deserve in terms of their respective positions. 
So I think it's unacceptable that Oireachtas members and Oireachtas committees are described as a, a mob when what we're trying to do is hold these individuals to account and to get answers to questions such as why it costs 500 million euro more at least to build a national children's hospital and that has scandalised uh, people. So I think his comments were unacceptable, unfortunate. Uh, I'm somewhat happy that he has uh, somewhat apologised, but I think it gives us an insight into how some senior civil servants see Oireachtas committees and the PAC. Uh, did you get the impression uh, that the civil service wanted to give an explanation? Uh, no, to be quite frank. And I think what was interesting about yesterday's hearing is that uh, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform is responsible for making sure that we get value for money for all big infrastructure projects. Yeah. And obviously the uh, part that they are responsible for is tendering and procurement. And of the 10 big projects under Ireland, uh, Project 2040, uh, the second biggest, pro- the biggest project, uh, the second most advanced project is the National Children's Hospital. But of those 10 projects, which include uh, waterworks and major road improvements on the M11 and elsewhere, uh, the only one that used uh, this unusual bespoke two-stage process that was signed off on by by the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform was the National Children's Hospital. And essentially what they did is they costed the bare bones, the shell of the hospital. Uh, But obviously when we had design changes and the fit-out costs and other associated costs, there were estimates or a guesstimate, as Mr. Watts said, rather than actual costs. Mm. And that in part led to the overrun. So there was a a number of reasons why, in my view, there was a, a, a cost overrun of the scale that there was. But it's quite obvious if you don't have an overspend in all the other projects, which we don't, and we have a massive overspend in this uh, uh, um, project, which we do, then we have to look at the procurement process. And it was disappointing yesterday that the head of the Office of Public Public Procurement was not at the meeting, even though the PAC had requested that he would attend. And I think his absence was noted. It was unfortunate again. And I think he would have been in a position to help us better understand the tendering process that was used. Right. Uh, And Robert Watt said that he was the only person who was legally obliged to appear before you. He said that he didn't know about the overspend until the 19th of November. Uh, Then he was questioned about that uh, because uh, the minister said he knew about it on the 9th. And he said, oh, yeah, I must have known about it around the 9th. Uh, And he was asked, where is Paul Quinn? Because uh, Paul Quinn is uh, the civil servant who sits on the board of uh, the National Pediatric Hospital Development Board. Uh, I'm told uh, there was a a pre-meeting held between the chair, Sean Fleming, and Robert Watt. uh, And Sean Fleming was asking him about this. uh, And afterwards, uh, the Irish examiner heard Mr. Watt make uh, the mob comment. Uh, but uh, he wasn't there, uh, and there's no obvious explanation, is there, or is there, as to why uh, Paul Quinn didn't appear before you? No, and I think it was uh, an intentional uh, act on behalf of the accounting officer, Mr. Watt, uh, to ensure that he wasn't there, because, as was pointed out, uh, the only project under Pro- uh, Ireland 2040, Project 2040, that followed this very unusual procurement process was the National Children's Hospital. And this individual, and I'm sure he's a fine civil servant, but he is the head of the Office of Public Procurement. 
he also sat on the board at the National Children's Hospital. So he was in a quite unique position to help the Public Accounts Committee. And you're right in saying that the only uh, people who are legally obliged mm. to appear before the Public Accounts Committee are the accounting officers who are the directors general of the departments. But uh, as you know, when the accounting officers come before the PEC, they bring officials with them. We had asked uh, that this official would come before the PEC and Mr. Watt decided for whatever reason not to bring him. Only he can account for that decision, but I think uh, in the spirit of ensuring that the Public Accounts Committee is in a position to do its work, Mm. to get answers to questions, I think it's quite obvious to most people that to have the person that is the head of public procurement when you're talking about procurement would have been uh, helpful to the PEC. And given that this person also sat as a board member Mm. uh, on the National Children's Hospital would also have been helpful. Now, we understand that he has accepted to come in in a couple of weeks' time in his capacity as the uh, a board member. The problem is he may then not answer questions as the head of office of public procurement because he's not coming in on that basis. But, you know, that's very technical for people listening mm. to your programme. The bottom line is this, that the Public Accounts Committee has a job of work to do to scrutinise the spend of public money. Yeah. People are scandalised that over €500 million Euro more has been spent on this hospital. We all want the National Children's Hospital to be built, but it is now going to be one of the most, if not the most expensive hospital, children's hospital built anywhere in the world. The cost overruns are as a consequence of the, uh, in, in the first instance, the tendering process that was used. And second of all, because of escalating costs in construction and uh, and the fact that the design had changed a number of times, we still haven't got to the bottom mm. of exactly why there was a cost overrun. But to have an overrun of at least 500 million euro and possibly more is is unacceptable, and it isn't victimless in yeah. its, uh, no, uh, in well, its outcome because you're, you're speaking to the victims. We have to, we, exactly, we have to pay for it. We know that yeah. some projects will be stalled mm. and will not go ahead and help as, as was anticipated or expected. Um, they still haven't signed off mm. on the National Capital Plan yet uh, for help because that they are assessing which projects to proceed with and not. So mm-hmm. all projects, in my view, most of them have been somewhat affected by this, in, certainly in the short term. It's a, an awful lot of money. And we, the people of this country, pay these civil servants an awful lot of money to spend our money and we have a a right to know how they're spending it uh, and if there's an overrun. When Mr Quinn appears before the committee, undoubtedly you'll be asking him when he became aware of the scale of the overrun. uh, As I said, Robert Watt said yesterday he knew about it on the 19th of November, revised that to say, oh, it must have been around the 9th of November. I, I take it you'll expect Paul Quinn to say that he knew about it last August. Yes, I think he would have known about it before that. There's minutes of uh, meetings. There was a number of subcommittees of the board as well that Mr. Quinn sat on. And I suppose the questions we'll have will be what was his reporting uh, structures and the relationship between his uh, role as the head of public procurement, but also as um, the, uh, the, the, the person who sat on the board. So when he first found out there was going to be a significant cost overrun, did he have a responsibility to report that back to his department? And then that the minister would have known, the minister who ultimately signs the cheque for this, which is the Minister for Finance and Public Expenditure. But there's also a deeper issue here in relation to the attitude of very senior civil servants to Oireachtas committees. Mm. Uh, And while we have our work to do, I don't expect, and nor do I want, uh, 
accounting officers to like public representatives or individual public representatives. But as a Rockdis committees, there is a need to make sure we hold these individuals to account, that we get value for money. And when crises uh, happen, and they did in a number of areas with cervical check, the different crises we had in the Department of Justice uh, and elsewhere, the Public Accounts Committee have a job of work to do to make sure that these people are somewhat held to account. The problem is, very rarely they are. There's very few sanctions, if any, that are imposed on people who are responsible for wrongdoing. We saw it with cervical check. We saw it with the penalty point scandal, with Temple Moore and with many more scandals uh, as well. We saw it with Project Eagle, with NAMA that we looked at. Very, very few people are held to account and and, and I suppose the biggest one of all, the banking crisis and that scandal. Mm. You know, people are very rarely held to account for mistakes that cost the taxpayer Mm. huge amounts of money. And if we get to the point that they're even precious about coming before the Public mm-hmm. Accounts Committee and being asked a few hard questions by Oireachtas members. I think we're in a very, very poor state when it comes to public accountability. Well, is it wrong to stonewall the Public Accounts Committee or any Oireachtas Committee? Well, it's my judgment, and whether I was a politician or mm. not, I think it's proper that accounting officers would ask questions honestly mm. and would appear before the Public Accounts Committee to cooperate and help them to do their job. So we have to establish the facts. Mm. Uh, we know from the National Children's Hospital that both the Health Committee and the PEC had to drag information out of the uh, department. In fact, there was a major report done by Mazars, which identified many of the failings in the process that was only given to the Public Accounts Committee weeks after they had appeared before the committee. Mm. The same with the Health Committee. There was minutes of meetings that took uh, a long time to surface and to appear. So all of that, in my view, is part of frustrating and stonewalling yeah. And at the end of and the day... it would appear to be so walling. They work... Well, I would use that phrase. Mm. Uh, other people obviously can use whatever phrase mm. they want. At the end of the day, I think that it's healthy in a democracy that people who spend huge amounts of taxpayers' money on our behalf and are paid very handsomely, hundreds of thousands of euro a year, to do their job, and, and that's, you know, that's mm. what they get. They need... To, to make sure that in doing that, that they are accountable back to the people who are elected. And, and when Mr. Watt says... Which are established for that purpose. When Mr. Watt says he, he's obliged to appear before your committee, is, is he obligated uh, to account for himself, to account uh, for how his uh, department has handled the spending of uh, public money? Is he obligated to be transparent? Uh, because... Suppose it's true to say that recently the Public Accounts Committee has had a degree of bad press, and quite rightly so, I think some people would feel. But having said that, this is a cross-party committee of elected representatives who are put in position to hold uh, people to account for the spending of public uh, money because you're there to represent the people of this country. Uh, Is he obliged to be transparent? Yes, the accounting officers are legally obliged to be both transparent uh, but also to be factual when they come before the Public Accounts Committee but in the first instance to appear before us. Uh, And then obviously they can be helpful by ensuring that if we uh, ask for additional um, uh, civil servants to help us in their work that they would attend as well. But you have to go back to his comments yesterday outside the Public Accounts Committee. Again, you know, we're uh, uh, not brittle individuals as politicians. We're well able for the cut and trust of politics. Mm -hmm. What accounting officers describe us as in their own uh, right outside of those committees is a matter for them. But outside a committee chamber, just before an accounting officer comes before the PEC, to describe members of the PEC as a mob, does give you an insight, in my view, into how some 
of those accounting officers see politicians and indeed how they treat Oireachtas committees. Mm. Well, he sees and you as a rowdy nuisance or something like that, I think. I, I think they see us as an inconvenience and it goes back yeah. to, to mm. the point I made. Uh, we have very little ability to hold them to account for wrongdoing or for major mistakes. Uh, very rarely are any of them uh, uh, subject to any form of sanction. Uh, one of the only things that they have to endure or suffer, if you want to use that phrase, is to be asked hard questions by politicians. And even that is an irritant and a source of inconvenience for them. It's not good enough. We have to ensure that they are fully accountable. And I think as well there should be sanctions and, and much more robust sanctions in place when there is wrongdoing of a scale such as the National Children's Hospital and many of the other scandals that we saw. Because the, I think the big thing that affects people who listen to your programme mm. is that with Cervical Check, with the Department of Justice and the Garda Sheikana, with the banks and with all of these uh, crises that happen, nobody is ever held to account mm. uh, in any shape, form or fashion. Uh, and I think that's what needs to change. Uh, but this kickback against the PEC, I think, is part of uh, an attitude from some at the top of the civil service towards the whole issue of public accountability and whether or not they should be held to uh, account. I believe they should be, and I think some have a different view. Mm, and as I've said many times before, when many of us dragged ourselves out of bed this morning to come into work to earn a crust, uh, we know that a, a lot of that will go over to pay for uh, the procurement of projects such as this uh, through our, our taxes and all of that. So, I mean, that's what we're getting up in the morning for, which is this overspend, uh, this waste of money, as it would seem to a, a lot of people. And, of course, there are very serious questions. But this morning, as entertaining as it is to talk about the mob in the Public Accounts Committee or how he gave a Harvey Smith to the committee or whatever other headline uh, is sexy, if you like, uh, there's very, very serious questions that have been left unanswered. Absolutely, but we will keep going in our work. And it's not just the the PAC, the Health Committee and the Finance Committee from their perspective. So also examining this, uh, we have the PWC report, which is ongoing and will do uh, its work. And all we're trying to do here is establish the facts. I think it's it's right and proper that Oireachtas committees are given full and factual information and we can then learn lessons because there's going to be more big infrastructural projects. And if mistakes were made, we have to learn the lessons. We can have a debate about if mistakes are made that were of a scale that cost taxpayer money, who should be held to account and how. That's one issue. But the biggest thing is that we learn lessons and we make sure that we don't make the mistakes again. But if the Dáil committees are not in a position to get information and learn what those mistakes are, then mistakes will be made again. And as I said, the people listening to your programme who uh, pay their taxes, who depend on public services, uh, who are victims of, at times, bad public services, uh, need to know that when they pay their taxes, they get value for money and that there isn't waste of that scale in the system. And we don't have mistakes of that scale that cost us almost 500 million euro at least and, and upwards of that if, 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 if it is the case that it costs more than what is being projected. Alright, we'll leave it there and thank you very much indeed for joining Her us. Mother, this morning. Thank you indeed. Sinn Féin TD David Cullinan is a member of the Public Accounts Committee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
pharmacists uh, across uh, the country are calling for a better Garda visible presence in communities. Uh, they say that if Gardaí were more visible, uh, there'd be less crime. 96% of pharmacists believe this to be the case. If Gardaí responded quicker, uh, there'd uh, be less crime, according to 89% of pharmacists. And if sentences were tougher, there'd be less crime, according to 86% of pharmacists. And uh, pharmacies are the subject of much crime, it seems, with 75% of pharmacists surveyed by the Irish Pharmacy Union saying that they have suffered crime in the last year or so. We're joined by Derek Connolly, who's the president of the IPU. Good morning to you, Darren. And Good morning, everybody. Thank you for having uh, me on the programme. 81% of uh, the pharmacies uh, who were subject to crime suffered crime on multiple occasions. Yeah. Sad reflection of the society that we're in that pharmacists feel that the good work that they want to do in their communities for their customers for their patients is uh, we're being stopped from doing that good work by people who feel that they don't have to pay for things that they can commit crime that they feel that there is very little chance of getting caught and if you do get caught there's very little chance of you actually having to answer for what it is that you've done that is reflected in all of those things that our members say to us, members of the Irish Pharmacy Union, and when we ask them what they think would make a difference, those things, as you've quite correctly outlined, are we would like to see a greater police presence, we would like to see a quicker police reaction time, and thirdly, we would like to see the courts take these crimes more seriously because we all should have the ability to go to work without being threatened, without being the victims of crime, without, as I have had to experience in my own pharmacy in Dungarvan, being spat at, being punched and being kicked. And at least in my circumstance, I have to commend uh, the Gardaí in Dungarvan. They were fantastic. The uh, person was brought to court and she was made fully to account for what she did to me. And I was very pleased, not that it had happened, but that there was a proper resolution to it and that it hasn't happened since. Quite often crimes in pharmacists are are not reported and I I suppose that's probably not too surprising given the nature of the business these days. In many ways, like a a news agent uh, that suffers shoplifting uh, and pharmacies now are places where you can go in and buy bubble bath or condoms or fake tan as the case may be. What we're starting to see unfortunately is we do this survey every year to try and find out what the trends are. What we're Two things that are very unfortunate is, is that the amount of crime that pharmacies and pharmacists and their staff are suffering is staying the same or going up. But probably the most worrying part of the survey is, is that pharmacists seem to be less inclined to report the crime to the Gardaí. Mm. That is a reflection of the, 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 the time in which it takes the Gardaí to get to the scene. If you can imagine, the best evidence you're going to get is that if you can catch somebody red-handed or if you can catch somebody who's just leaving the scene of the crime, once you kind of get past that five or ten golden minutes, as the Gardaí call them, the ability to actually get enough proof to prosecute that person becomes less and less. So what pharmacists know is that the way the judicial system seems to be rigged, as far as we can see, in favour of the perpetrators of crime that the burden of proof is so high that if we can't get those 9, 10, 11 things absolutely and perfectly correct, that there isn't a chance of that person having to face up 
what it is they did. So, really, would you blame any pharmacy mm. for not reporting those crimes? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, and, and that's uh, the analogy I was making with news agents. Uh, would a news agent report to Gardy that somebody has taken a chocolate bar off a shelf and walked out the door in the same way uh, that uh, pharmacies are having stuff taken off uh, the shelves of their shops as such? I, I take it there's, a, I take it there's a, an onus, though, on pharmacists to report serious sure, crime if something, if something like methadone is taken, that yes. you, you're obliged to take it or other serious drugs yeah. uh, are taken from the shop. But if somebody comes in and takes fake tan, which uh, appears uh, to be the single biggest item which is lifted out of your shops, uh, there's very little point in reporting and no obligation on you to do it. Yeah, well, look, I I bring that argument a little bit further forward and you make it very well. However, theft is theft. If you haven't bought it, you haven't paid for it, and you take it, that is stealing. Oh, of course. So, you know, in the eyes of the law... Whether that thing is worth 10 euros, 100 euros, or 1,000 euros, you have stolen it. If we take the opinion within pharmacies that we then start to send out a signal that we won't report somebody for stealing something which is worth 10 euros, but really once it starts to get to 100 or it's methadone, we will, Mm. that's sending out a very poor signal to our communities, which means to say that we think it's okay for you to steal our property in the same way that I might say to you, would you say that if somebody came into your house and robbed something worth 10 euros from your house, you wouldn't call the guards, but you might do it if they stole your television, which is worth 500? Uh, uh, unfortunately, I think the answer to that is yes, most people don't report uh, small crimes yeah. like that. So we mm. then have to say to ourselves, not just as pharmacists mm. and the communities that we want to serve, we actually have to say to ourselves, what is it that we want the judicial system to do? Mm. And what is it that we want the guards to do to be able to bring the perpetrators of crime to court to answer up for what it is that they've done. Pharmacists work really, really hard in their Mm. communities to get people to their full fitness, to their full health. And part of that is actually rehabilitating people who have issues around substance abuse, Mm. alcohol abuse, or are going through rough times in their lives. Mm. Well, that's it. Quite often the people who are breaking in and stealing from my house or uh, attending your clinic uh, and getting treatment uh, because of uh, the addictions. uh, Some circumstances they are in actually in more circumstances they're not because mm -hmm. these people are more professional than you and I might think. Mm. But the pharmacists who provide those services are magnets, targets, uh, if Uh, you like, for for a lot of people. Interestingly Uh, enough, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because interestingly enough, actually, the corollary is true. There is less crime in pharmacies that supply those services to mm. those people. Because they have them. security guards, though. No. No? Okay. Not, not, okay, not necessarily. Okay. Forgive, not necessarily. For, forgive my assumption, because that's yeah, where I was going with that. It's yeah, an yeah, assumption. Yeah. Lots, lots, yeah. lots of pharmacists mm. who don't actually have you know, cause or have been asked to supply these services actually think that that's the case. It's actually far from it. And one of the circumstances that we always say to community pharmacists and the people who use them, we are there for everybody and we give the best possible service that we can to everybody who needs our help mm. for lots and lots of times in their lives, for lots and lots of different kinds of medical and pharmacy needs that they might have. When we look at a sad reflection of an inaction that is coming from the judiciary or an inaction that is coming from mm. uh, our government when it comes to crime and pharmacies, our ability to do that job is going to be lessened if I have to buzz you in and out mm-hmm. of my pharmacy, if there has to be a security guard vetting you at yeah. my door mm-hmm. before you can actually have your health care need taken care of in a community.
community farming. Uh, and that's something that we are becoming mm-hmm. accustomed to, to some degree at least. Uh, you talk about uh, policing communities and indeed pharmacists within the communities but a lot of pharmacists have taken to policing their own stores themselves by employing security guards and undoubtedly that will deter people from stealing but I take it that one of the reasons people are employing security guards as well is because of violent attacks and one in four of your members have been subject to violent attacks. What we know that violence is, is violence is either a physical assault, but violence, if you've ever suffered from it, as I have and lots of people listening this morning will have, Mm. violence doesn't necessarily have to be a physical blow. It can be the threat of it. It can be extremely frightening. It can be extremely disconcerting. And for quite a long time after, the fact that one in four pharmacies have said to us that they have been victims of this is, is, is a very sad reflection of where we are in our society, that people going to work doing a very good job, working hard, earning a living, contributing back to their community, making a difference to healthcare, that one in four of those has been the victim of an assault. And you then have to say to yourself, if you were to follow it through, Mm. what was the repercussion for the person who perpetrated the crime? Mm. Was it taken seriously as far as the victim is concerned when Mm. they got to court? Was it a circumstance that happened with me and the particular assault that I happened to be in in Dungarvan? That particular perpetrator, because the burden of evidence was so high, Mm a plea bargain to a lesser charge of a fray rather than assault Mm. and that's what she admitted to Mm. rather than saying because the guard said to me there is less chance of a conviction happening Yeah, and I think the repercussion is uh, obvious uh, not just with yourself but with other people it it plays on your mind and it stays on your mind Dara I have to leave it there for the moment but thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning thank you very much Dara Connolly President of the IPU that's the Irish Pharmacy Union Michael Reed on LMFM well, it is International Women's Day. It's uh, the 45th year uh, that the day has been recognised uh, by the United Nations, uh, which began all the way back in 1909 with a Women's Day organised by the Socialist Party of America. After that, uh, it was an annual event uh, that was organised by the International Socialist Women's Conference. And in 1917, it became uh, the 8th of March uh, that the day was held on and first recognised by the United Nations in 1975. Today is a special Women's Day in Ireland uh, because it's expected that a special meeting of the Cabinet today, which will discuss women's issues, will ratify what's known as the Istanbul Convention. Uh, We're joined now uh, by the National Women's Council uh, and uh, the... uh, I beg your pardon, I've lost uh, my notes, uh, but uh, the Legal Affairs uh, spokesperson is on the line. Uh, my sincere apologies. Uh, no, 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 that's all right. That's all right. Uh, my name is Jennifer. I'm actually the head of policy Je- Je- at the I National beg your pardon. Je- Je- Jennifer McCarthy. Yeah. <laughs> McCarthy <Okay>. Flynn, even. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know if that's ever happened to you before, Jennifer. You're, you're very welcome to the programme. Good morning and thank you indeed for joining us uh, on what is a special day, I think, here. Uh, there's a, a lot of fuss about Women's Day, uh, but there's a very serious aspect to it, uh, which uh, the government will be discussing today. 
That's right. And, and, and a happy International Women's Day to yourself, Michael, and to all your listeners. And thank you for having us on to have, uh, have this conversation with you. Yeah, it's, um, you did a really great, I guess, <laughs> history of International Women's Day there. No, it's, I mean, I think it's not, great. Not, think not it's my really best good. introduction, I have no, to say. No, not at all. I think it's really great. But I think it is really great for us to try to kind of remember the roots. I mean, the roots are really women fighting for better pay, better working conditions in sweatshops in America at the turn of the 20th century. And of course, women are still fighting for good pay and good work conditions and uh, now as well so there's a re- so it's really good to remind ourselves of that fight how far we've come but i guess as well how much is still to be done and as you said today is a particularly special international women's day i think for women in ireland um i mean we're really I can't tell you, we're just so pleased in the National Women's Council and so many other organisations around the country that after, you know, decades of really hard work and activism and lobbying and, you know, lobbying and policy work, um, you know, Ireland is going to ratify what, as you said, is the Istanbul Convention, which is a really powerful uh, legal treaty by the Council of Europe that countries can sign up to, and then we're going to ratify it today. We've actually signed up since 2015. We're going to ratify it today, which means it'll actually come into law going forward, and it's, it's going to give. Uh, Irish women uh, and girls some of the strongest protections mm-hmm. uh, and some of the strongest obligations on the Irish state and all the actors of the Irish state, so on Garda Síochána, the various departments that would have responsibilities um, you know, to provide services, to provide support, to provide um, survivors' supports, to, to provide preventative supports, real obligations uh, on them to ensure that women are safe and to do the things that are necessary to make sure they are safe. So mm-hmm. we're really pleased to be at this point um, in this whole issue of violence against women to have this um, really important treaty ratified. No, known so, as the Istanbul Convention, but it, it's right, a convention yeah. on preventing and combating violence against yeah. women, which was uh, agreed uh, eight years ago in Ireland, as yeah. you say, signed yeah. up to it in 2015. Yeah. Uh, but, but we've been uh, putting all of our cogs in place yeah. as such uh, and uh, some recent legislation has allowed us the opportunity today to ratify this convention. Yeah, absolutely, Michael, that's exactly it. I mean, we signed it in 2015, but we had pieces of legislation that we had to change or we had to actually develop in order to actually come into line with it. And so the final piece, which is a, a sort of complex piece around extraterritoriality, has just been completed by this government. And I would like to, I think the National Women's Council of Ireland would really like to acknowledge the very extensive kind of legislation that this government, first under, particularly under Minister Francis Fitzgerald, and then now the current Minister for Justice and Equality, uh, Charlie Flanagan, that they've done phenomenal work, um, you know, developing that legislation and pushing that legislation through with a lot of activism and advocacy and real challenging and support from organisations like the National Women's Council, but also Women's Aid, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And then we chair a network of all those specialist organisations called the National Observatory on Violence mm-hmm. Against Women. And we've done a lot of work uh, with various state bodies over the years developing those, those legislation pieces and those support pieces to make, to bring Ireland to the point that we could ratify this convention today, which, uh, you know, as we were saying, is such a, makes today such an important day, mm-hmm. I think, for Irish women as well. Which affords protection for women, uh, but mm-hmm. it, of course mm-hmm. it, it doesn't bring about equality and there's a lot more to do. That's right. That's right. And I think some of the key issues that I think even in connection with the issue about violence against women is I think legislation is important, but we would know in the National Women's Council of Ireland um, from both our members and, and the work that we do directly ourselves, 
you know, the housing crisis, for example, Michael, is putting enormous pressure on women to potentially stay in unsafe situations. Um, the number of refuge spaces in Ireland are very low for women and some of the services and supports that women need to even think and make themselves safe, perhaps, as they start thinking about leaving unsafe situations, were very dramatically cut back during the austerity period. And not all of those services and supports have been mm. um, fully resumed and resourced to the levels that are needed. And so those kinds of really practical um, resourcing issues uh, are really the next steps that the government and the state need to take to really make Istanbul meaningful in women's lives. So proper housing. So, you know, the the impact of the housing crisis on women is enormous. Women are becoming homeless out of the private rented mm-hmm. sector, which is the fastest growing housing crisis, and that really has impacts then on women, in just even in the area of violence against women. Women's need for really proper public supports and public services, particularly in the area of childcare. You know, mm-hmm. I know this is a very... Yeah. We've, we've been hearing a lot about that recently, but women really need that in order to be able to enter the workforce and to take up those opportunities mm-hmm. and have real proper economic independence going forward. G- gender balance and uh, equal earnings are obviously uh, issues of uh, concern, but attitudes uh, towards women, I mean, it's uh, been a a kind of a weird, strange week uh, to think uh, that we're living uh, in 2019 and talking about as to whether women should have to wear makeup to work or wear skirts, as the case may be. Yeah, 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 it is. I mean, we... um we had a we had a National Women's Council of Ireland had a big conference yesterday, Michael, about ending sexual violence and harassment mm. in third level education. And young women and young women students really reference and they really talk about those pieces that you've just taken mm. up there. How their their bodies, the clothes they wear, the way they look, mm. um, their right to be in places like nightclubs and bars mm. and even some public spaces can be really challenged and confronted and they can really experience serious harassment and so yeah absolutely in the 21st century it is not right that women face that level of discrimination it's harassment it's harassment and it's exploitation and today is a women's rights day and it's a a day that is exploited it's uh, being exploited for commercial reasons yeah and I think that I think you're right to call attention to that uh, Michael and we of course we would not we don't want women's rights and International Women's Day to be used to gloss over real um, discrimination mm. and oppressions and exploitations that women are experiencing. I-, I would like to say, though, nonetheless, we do we do need to see um, businesses and corporations making real efforts mm. to challenge and to also improve the things that they can do, like, for example, better work-life balance, so childcare that they fund and they provide, better parental leave, maternity leave. You know, the minimums that the state provides through our social protections, you know, like our maternity leave, those are just minimums. Businesses and corporations can do far better for women and for men in all of those areas that would make working life so much easier for families in this country. Mm. More than half, you know, women make up almost half of the, the workforce, but they're still having to undertake a huge percentage of um, all of the care work in society. It would go a long way if businesses would properly fund services themselves in that regard okay. and supports and so on and really have a culture that when families, women and men, 
um, are producing and, and, and raising their children, they have the same expectations from women and men. Okay. Oh, you have a young child? Well, you know, we kind of think that you'll probably want to take time off work to be with your young child whether you're a man or a woman. So that the expectation isn't just that women will do that, but that men will do that too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that women don't pay that kind of mummy tax, as it's sometimes called, All right, um, Jennifer, about that. Yeah. I've run over time. I have to leave oh it there. But gosh, thank you very okay. much indeed for your time. Yeah. And uh, apologies again for, no, not at all. for, for losing Thank you very much for making the time yeah, to, yeah. to talk about this. And right. Happy International Women's Day. And to you. And all okay. the women of uh, the North East, Jennifer McCarthy Flynn, Head of Policy with the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Davian from Navin was in touch and he says it seems that nobody is going to take responsibility or be held to account over the overspend at the National Children's Hospital. If this was a private company, heads would roll. But once again, the government gets off scot-free and it's us, the taxpayers, that have to pick up the tab. Ah, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> Mark from Navin. What was witnessed yesterday at the PAC, the Public Accounts Committee, was typical of the civil service, the untouchables in Irish society. Not one civil servant lost their job as a result of the financial crash. Say what you like about politicians. At least they go before the people to be elected and the voters decide if they are doing a good job. Ah, Why yeah. not? Whatever, whatever. <laughs> Matthew from Drada, just listening to your piece on the hospital overrun. Thank God we have strong opposition like Sinn Féin to hold them yahoos to account yeah. while Fianna Fáil mm. sit on their hands, uh, says no, Well, you see, this is the point that we were making. Uh, uh, it wasn't a political charge uh, that was being made against the civil servants yesterday and it would be wrong to portray it that way because then you have division on these things. The politicians are there and they speak with one voice in these committees, uh, particularly in the Public Accounts Committee, uh, and uh, they do so on behalf of all of the people of uh, the country. And it is a cross-party committee. We asked David Cullinan onto the programme the morning yes. because uh, he was uh, the TD who first questioned Robert Watt about the mob comment. He was also questioned uh, about that comment, uh, I, I think, uh, by Alan Kelly and by Mark McSherry. Mark McSherry said he was doing a Harvey Smith. Alan Kelly is the Labour Party. Mark McSherry yes. is uh, Fianna Fáil TD. Uh, there was a lot of disquiet amongst all of the committee members. Fine Gael strongly represented on the committee as well. And it is a cross-party committee. It's not uh, an opposition claim that something is happening. It's across the board that the politics are coming together saying, well, what's happening here? John says that he feels Eroctus committees, like the Public Accounts Committees, are a good idea, mm. that he feels they do. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. A good job in asking questions and sometimes get better answers than they would when you just discuss something in the doll because they have the ability to be able to bring people in mm. and, and quiz them, if you like. Yeah, well, one of the problems, I think, with the doll is the lack of debate. It's stage managed. Somebody gets up and asks a question, sit down, isn't allowed to talk again. The answer is given whether it's actually addressed the question or, or not and you move on to the next topic. The committees do interact and ask questions and so on and are very valuable in that sense. But sometimes there is a bit of playing to the gallery. Uh, this is the other side of it, uh, as uh, we've seen from uh, the Supreme Court ruling in relation to the uh, Angela Kearns case. On that survey on the crime in mm. pharmacies, uh, Catherine contacted us to say, I'm listening to your interview with the man from the pharmacy group. I have to say, I'd hate to run a business in Ireland today. Not only do you have to work very hard to, co- to cover your overheads and rates, etc., you are constantly being targeted by thieves. Mm. It must be so stressful and there seems to be little deterrent, yeah. says Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really safe anywhere in Ireland, is it? As another listener, pharm- pharmacists shouldn't have to be worried about being threatened with weapons. But why is this going on? I feel is because sentences are too lenient. Perhaps it's time to look at this. The criminals are getting Mm. off too lightly. They think nothing of it and it's something that we should all take responsibility for and we should be campaigning our politicians Well, the pharmacists agree. They say there's three things they want. One is uh, to be able to see the police, that there's a visible presence. Another is is that the police respond, that there's a a quicker guard response. And uh, the third is that uh, if you're caught brought before the court, that there's a tougher sentence. In all of that conversation, Mm. what struck Sean he says, I cannot believe the fake tan, tan is mm. the single biggest items that are lifted from chemists going on your interview this morning, mm. Michael. Mm. What does that say about us as a society? I'd love to know if it is the women or the men stealing it. And he adds, mm. seriously, all deliberate thefts, all deliberate thefts mm. should be reported. Also, otherwise, those doing it will think it's OK to do it. Yeah, well, probably both stealing it, uh, I'd say, uh, and uh, probably the wrong thing to say on International Women's Day, but uh, it's probably more likely that women tend to use fake tan more than men do. Uh, but men could as easily be stealing it and selling it on to women. Uh, if you're buying stolen products, it's 
the equivalent of stealing them. And I imagine fake tan is one of uh, the most stolen items because it's probably small and expensive and easy to put into your pocket without being seen. Speaking of International Women's Day, Marie from Drogheda was listening in to your interview and she was saying that considering the amount of violence against women in this country so far already this year, this convention ratification is to be welcomed. She feels that we need a change of mindset in this country and hopefully legislation will be the start of that. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth phoned in to wish us all happy International Women's Day and she says that Ireland has so many strong women that we can look up to but she feels that we have been let down in terms of equality for women in the workplace and Mm -hmm. equal pay. She says on this front, she feels there needs to be more support for women who work and are trying to rear their families, which after all is a huge job, not just for their own family, but as society, the children are brought up well. And she feels that there should be more flexibility in the workplace, Mm -hmm. that if flexible hours were available, that it would make... uh, being able to double job, if you like, for women mm. more easier. That once they do the work, uh, she feels flexible hours should be available. And again, that's up to government to be looking at this. Yeah. Uh, well, we've come a, a, an awful long way in terms of equality. Uh, I think that has to be said, uh, but we've a long way to go yet. We sure do. Um, we had a couple of comments in relation to uh, the exchange between Shane Ross and Imelda Munster that we covered at the end of the show yesterday. Mm. And uh, Tommy phoned in and he, he said that he was listening to the clip on the show. And it seems to him that the minister got hot onto the collar because he was found wanting and then decided to go on the attack. That he had to resort to name calling he feels brought both the office he holds and himself as a politician and a person down. Why was he not ordered out of the doll or maybe put in a bold corner for Mm. a few minutes to let him cool down? (laughs) Says Tommy. Uh, Margaret, on the same topic, says that Shane Ross seems to think that he's not answerable to anybody, not his opposition spokespersons or members of the public. His attack on Imelda Munster, she doesn't think, has done him any good. Maybe he has done her a favour as she's got great publicity out of it. Well, maybe so. Maybe so. She certainly has and that publicity continues uh, today. But hold on thought uh, because uh, Imelda Munster, uh, one of uh, the few female politicians in uh, the Dáil, uh, one of, I suppose, the many politicians that we have locally uh, who are female. First woman from yeah, Loud yeah, to be elected. Yeah, first yeah, woman yeah. from Loud. Yeah. I suppose the reason I say that is uh, that uh, it ties in with uh, celebrating women on International Women's Day, or what is it all about? Uh, you've been out and about asking I people sure what they think of this day. International Women's Day should be celebrated every day. Brilliant idea. It's a lot better, but it probably still has a long way to go for certain women. But, um, yeah, we're doing well. And will you do anything special on Friday? Um, I'll be working, but, yeah, I will celebrate it. I will be celebrating. I am going up to AIB Central Bank and I'm singing with the Sea of Change Choir, which are the choir from Ireland's Got Talent. And we're celebrating International Women's Day together as a group. And we're going to sing for all the women in Ireland. Oh, I'd say that would be just fabulous. Do you think it's a day worth celebrating as a woman? I think it is. I think anything that celebrates women and that allows for the empowerment of women. I think women knock each other down the whole time and we're our own worst critics. And I think if we can do anything to build each other up and to say, yeah, we do a bloody good job, then it's worth celebrating. Well, I do think it means a lot for us, especially nowadays. We are making a lot of progress, but we're not exactly there yet. And I'd like to live in a world where I know that in the future I'll have the same pay as like my male colleagues things like that so uh. is that a a thing for you like you're being educated now and you want to be able to have the same 
a salary as someone doing the same job. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Like if I'm working really long hours when I'm older, I want to be be paid the exact same amount as other people who are working the same amount as me. And it is it is a huge issue at the moment. I love it. And I know men complain about it sometimes, but I think they should have a man's day. So it's women that arrange Women's Day, let men arrange Men's Day. I think it's brilliant, Women's Day. Yeah, all for it. And will you do anything at all? Well, I'll do something and get together with some of my friends and definitely, you know, celebrate in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it's good being a woman in Ireland today? Um, I think that in some ways it's probably better than it was for my mother, but I'm hoping it'll be better for my daughters. I, don't, I still don't think there's equality. I think there's still the boys' club and I think there's still a few barriers to be broken, but we're getting there. And do you think events like International Women's Day will help to break down those barriers? I hope so. I think it draws awareness to them and awareness is the first thing you need to start breaking down any barrier. I'm going to a, a talk in Sage and Stone in Dalik on Friday evening. Uh, Liz Lynch is giving a talk and it should be very interesting about her trip to Maui. Fantastic. And do you think International Women's Day, it's a good idea? Excellent idea, yes, yes. Do you think that more should be done to try and enhance women's rights? Well, I think we're doing a fairly good job as it is, you know, but yeah, every every little helps, you know. I'm all for International Women's Day, absolutely. What would we do without women? What would the men do without the women? <laughs> I haven't heard of it, no, and I'll still be working that day. So you won't be doing anything now that you have heard of it? Unfortunately not. <laughs> I wish I could, but no. I think it's a great idea, but I won't be doing anything special, but I do think it's a good idea. We have to celebrate women. My daughter is in St. Oliver's and she is doing um, it's like women that inspire them so they all have to choose a woman and uh, that's fantastic isn't it it is yeah I think it's great for them I will be celebrating because I think women put so much into the world so much into family life into everything it should be celebrated every day of the week they contribute so much to family life society work everything and it should be celebrated and appreciated for everything they do Indeed. Thank you to everybody who took time out uh, to speak with Marie Kearns for us there. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, the appropriate and uh, the dignified murder of Irish citizens by British troops. Des Dalton is a spokesperson for Republican Sinn Féin. He's on the line. Good morning, Des. Thanks for joining us. Karen Bradley is profoundly sorry. Should she be forgiven? Uh, no, I, I think this is an issue that's, that's uh, far bigger than just Karen Bradley. Um, you know, I think as journalist Suzanne Breen pointed out in an article yesterday, it would be bad enough if it was an off-the-cuff remark, but this was a statement given in the House of Commons, which by definition means it was a prepared statement, and it was prepared not just by her, but most likely by her officials. So to me, what that indicates is that this, indicates and this this um, highlights what is a British government view. It's well, Karen Bradley says it, it wasn't prepared, that she was speaking in the heat of debate, as she put it, uh, but uh, she really was endorsing what was said in the question that was put to her by the DUP. Emma Little-Pengeli asked her uh, the question uh, and uh, she went further than the DUP MP did in the question and it would seem that it was quite possibly coordinated, staged managed, if you like. Very, very, very possible. Um, I think what it does indicate, um, and be it prepared or not, I think the mask slipped and I think she just, she has shown what has been an attitude of British governments in Ireland. Not just of this one, but of all of its predecessors. And uh, your remarks, similar to to um, 
Karen Bradleys have been made numerous times in the past in the House of Commons, and indeed infamously in the 1980s, we had, we, we, we had situations where people were named, mm. uh, and indeed um, the late Passanukin was named uh, in, in, in the House of Commons. Um, look, you know, the attitude of the British government, and it just shows there's a colonial mindset about it, 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 uh, it, it, it's... Its presence in Ireland, and that's something that Republicans have always pointed out: mm. that it's not a normal presence. It's not as they have attempted to portray themselves as some kind of a neutral, peacekeeping force. There, they, they, they were quite, uh, how shall I put it, um, a, a very aggressive and um, a very confrontational attitude, particularly towards the nationalist community. And I mean that's been shown. And I think her her comments that the actions of the British armed forces in Ireland were. You know, appropriate and dignified. You know, quite a lot to do. And I, I, I don't think there are sixty-four people, including eighty-two children, that have died at the hands of British forces. Well, I, I don't think there's many people who would argue with the fact that there were innocent Irish citizens who died at uh, the hands of uh, the British Army. Uh, now, it seems as though the DUP is looking for a, a, an amnesty. Uh, for members of the army in terms of prosecutions uh, as to whether there were murders or not I suppose it would be up to somebody else to adjudicate a lot of us would think that there were citizens who were murdered by British troops but the DUP wants this amnesty Uh, they supply the British government uh, with the ability to remain in office the Prime Minister seems to be indicating that she would like to bring in some sort of measure that would be in effect to all intents and purposes an amnesty and then Karen Bradley makes this statement a week before it's decided whether British troops will be prosecuted for killing citizens uh, on uh, Bloody Sunday Oh, I, I would agree absolutely with with, with, with your analysis there. Um, I would feel that um, none of this is, is coincidental, of course. And, we, you know, there's a very, very weak uh, British government and an even weaker prime minister there, uh, which which is totally dependent on the DUP. But again, none of this is unique. Uh, you know, that kind of leverage has been used in the past before. But I think in many cases, you're, you're pushing an open door there. But yes, I, I do absolutely think that there is moves afoot there. I think um, Theresa May herself has already indicated uh, the idea of um, putting a statute of limitations, for instance, on, on, on prosecutions against members of the British forces in Ireland. So none of that is, um, I don't think any of that should come as a shock uh, to anybody that they would do that. And I think, to be honest with you, I think regardless of whether there was pressure there or not from the DUP, I think that there, was, there would also be internal pressure uh, from within the British establishment themselves, if you like to circle the wagons. Because, for instance, and I give an instance of mm. Bloody Sunday. The Savile Inquiry, whilst it was much welcomed, and indeed uh, we welcomed it ourselves, there was also huge failings in it. And one of those, and it was pointed out by, by, by a number of commentators, was that it was effectively, it ring-fenced um, the, if you like, the British soldiers on the ground. And what it did was it protected the, the political and military chain of command and ensured that there was no blame attached to any of those further up the way. And that's what the British establishment will always do. It will always protect itself. It'll be interesting to see over this weekend uh, what decisions are arrived at in terms of prosecutions on um, the, the, the British soldiers who, who were involved in Bloody Sunday. But again, you have to ask the questions about who were the people who directed the parish regiment sent to Derry on that particular weekend and the orders that they were, they were issued with. Um, you know, these are all of the kind of issues that are there because, again, it all comes back to the central question of 
Britain's role in Ireland and the nature of it. And that's it. Well, in more recent times, it comes back to the border, doesn't it? Uh, and I suppose if the DUP wants this amnesty, and that's a consequence of the agreement that they have with the Tories, another consequence of the agreement that they have with the Tories could be the return of a hard border customs posts and troops on the border. Uh, do you believe that they would become targets? Um, look, I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, any reading of Irish history has all shown that um, a, a British presence in Ireland, uh, in any in any shape or form, um, will always, uh, if you like, ignite a reaction from a section of the Irish people. And I think um, my own considered view would be that um, that that's a very strong possibility because, again, that would be, become a physical manifestation of. Of 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 a, of, a, of, a, of a British imposed border in Ireland, um, I suppose what's been trotted out and the line that's been given since 1998 is that there is no border, that you know there was no physical border, that there was normalisation, that well, there's no visible. Uh, you know, we we two normal states in Ireland and so on. And what this would do would be remind people of the fact that there actually is partition, that there are two distinct jurisdictions, and that there is still a British presence in Ireland. And would there be a paramilitary response? Would you expect? I. I don't know. I mean, again, as I say, the lesson of Irish history would be, and if you look at it, and as I've pointed out, and I mean, other people have pointed it out in, in the past, people that would not be in any way sympathetic to republicanism, such as, indeed, the, the, the former Garda Commissioner Pat Byrne a number of years ago, that as long as there's a British presence in Ireland, there will, there will, there will always be an IRA in one form or another um, to confront it. And, and that, that's just, that's the lesson of history. That's, you know, any casual... Uh, observation of Irish history will, will, will show that, you know, and that's why as Republicans we're constantly saying to deal with the issue, to, to deal with the whole question of Britain's presence in Ireland is a, a prerequisite but is to that the establishing position any of, kind of lasting peace in Ireland. Is that the position of Republican Sinn Féin, Des? Uh, you don't know what the consequence of uh, the return to troops would be, uh, the visible border. Sorry, uh, that you don't know what the consequence of a, a visible border would be. Well, I mean, uh, you know, again, as I said to you, just to point to to, to, to the lessons of the past, I think uh, the presence of a physical border. No, I know, uh, but, would, but 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 would, but would be a very would be a very stark reminder to people. Uh, I, I think even the fact that we're even having these kind of conversations mm. at the moment show that even the mention of uh, a physical border being imposed reminds people that what we were told. After 1998, that all of this is history, that all of this is confined mm. to the past, that we're, you know, we're actually being reminded that effectively there is still a British presence in Ireland, um, that the six northeastern counties um, are oh. under a different jurisdiction, and a claim of sovereignty is, 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 is now being okay, but I, I would overtly I... being imposed by Britain. So, I mean, all of those things. All of those things are trigger points and have always been trigger points in yeah. history. And I think well, of course they have that, that in, in history, but I, I think a lot of people would expect Republican Sinn Féin to have more of an insight into what the consequences might be than to reflect on what happened in history. Uh, you've uh, had support or you've given support uh, over the years uh, to many Republican paramilitary actions. Um, again, Michael, I'll point out, Republicans in Fane is a political organisation, so I can't give an insight into how uh, any other groups um, may or may not react. I can give you our political analysis, and that's what I'm giving you. Mm. And what I'm saying is, based on a long lifetime of involvement in Irish Republicanism, and indeed a long study of Republicanism and its history, I'm giving you my observation. And my observation is that, yes, I think that a physical border will 
will, will, will provoke a reaction because I think that, that's something that, as I said, a British presence in Ireland always has done. And I think something as stark and as overt as a physical border is a reminder mm. uh, to people that nothing has effectively changed, um, that there is still a, 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 a partition of Ireland, that there's still an occupation uh, in, in the six northeastern counties. And I think that will bring with it the reaction that has always been there, what, uh, as what, I say, back over the decades. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you think of uh, the letter bombs uh, sent to addresses in London and in Scotland? Well, I don't know any more than yourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of it, though? Was it wrong? About them. I don't know. To be honest with you, I, I, I find the whole the timing of it and all quite, quite suspicious. And, for instance, the, the sending of the, of the letter bomb to Scotland is quite bizarre. Um, you would have to ask the question, who benefits... Uh, from, 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 from that kind of action and so on and what kind of atmosphere does it engender uh, in, 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 in a week in which there is so much happening and indeed in the week building up to the House of Commons vote and so on. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, to be honest with you, I mean, to be honest, you know, it, it's a complete vacuum and as I say, your, your guess is as good as mine in terms of, 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 of what's at work there. What about the car bomb in Derry? What do you make of that? Well, again, um, as, as per my previous observation there, I think whilst that presence in Ireland is there, there will be a reaction to it. And I think that weekend was also the weekend there was a centenary of the Solheim Beg ambush and so on. And there was a lot of historical connotations mm. to that and the, 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 the first actions of the, of the Tan War, uh, 1919 and so on. And I suppose you had, you know, many within the political establishment mm. of so-called constitutional nationalism coming out and extolling Solheim Beg. And I suppose it was a reminder that the causes and effects of 1919 haven't gone away. Okay. And, um, a a, a lot of people would say it's terrible and they don't want to return to violence. Uh, and uh, the poll in the Irish Times today would indicate that there's little prospect of a uh, referendum resulting in a united Ireland. Well, I mean, Republicans uh, and Republicans in Spain would, 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 uh, would agree nobody wants to see a return to violence. And that's why we have always pointed out what the steps that are necessary and that are needed to end the conditions which bring about actions such as those in Derry. And that's why, for instance, we are constantly promoting uh, our programme, Air Renewal, mm. which is something that we, we've, we've been advocating for over 40 but, years. But, but, but those actions, those actions are, are that the British withdraw, aren't they? ignoring the conditions, by ignoring the well, I've just, conditions and I, the circumstances that lead to those actions. Well, I've just said then it. We just, we're, we're, well, then we're just condemned to repeat the cycle. And, and that's what we've had. Mm. If you look at, 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 at anglo air But why, when people don't want it? 90 years, for instance. But why, when people don't want it? Sorry? Why, why repeat the cycle when people don't want it? Well, the cycle is repeated, and, it, and, and whether Des Dalton or Republican Sinn Féin or anyone says it, um, there is, as I said to you, the lesson of Irish history has been that there will always be a section of the Irish people who will, um, who will engage um, with, 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 with the British presence in Ireland. And what we're saying is to break that cycle, instead of, as was done in 1998 and with other previous agreements before that, ignoring that primary issue, and attempting to reform and to um, to normalise the six county state, what we're saying is we need to move beyond that. We need, need to move to a situation whereby Britain declares its intent to withdraw from Ireland within a stated period of time, and then allow all of the Irish people to sit down and to decide the shape of a new Ireland, because that's the only way that we can finally break that cycle and finally establish uh, an Ireland of, 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 of real peace, a sustainable peace and justice. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment, Daz. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Daz Dalton, spokesperson for Republican Sinn Féin. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. 
Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Friday for our review of uh, the contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and Senators from Counties Louth and Meath. The report is brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Here's our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Louth Meath, the Oireachtas Report. We begin our roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Thursday. The provision of primary school spaces in Ashburn was raised by Fianna Fáil TD Thomas Byrne. He told Education Minister Joe McHugh that due to population increase, the current school accommodation situation in the town is chaotic. What's happened in Ashburn is that the population it continues to grow and during uh, the recession, or at least at the tail end of the recession, houses start to be built in Ashburn where they weren't being built in other places. Uh, and we're beginning to pay the educational price now. What's happening is that there is simply not enough room for all of the children who require primary school places in Ashburn. But as people move in uh, to Ashburn and they inquire about schools, that in some cases, when there's no place in Ashburn, they continue to go to the school that they went to where they came from, maybe in Dublin or in one case in Bray, another case in Drogheda. And in other cases, they go to schools uh, out in the countryside outside Ashburn. Uh, the Department of Education, I suppose, in its own mind, helpfully provides a list of alternative schools. Uh, but one of them, Corla, is 22 kilometres from Ashburn. And I don't believe that that uh, is acceptable. The ongoing drug feud in Drogheda was raised in the Dáil on Tuesday. Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster asked Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan what is being done to address policing in the area. The ongoing feud between drug gangs in, in Drogheda resulted in the recent shooting of a man in broad daylight in a public car park at a retail park. And that's the second shooting in recent months. We've also witnessed... Physical attacks, intimidation, kidnappings, threats and attacks on homes. And of the 18 additional Gardaí that were allocated in December, 15 of those were taken away in January, leaving us with just three additional Gardaí, which in no way in no way is sufficient to tackle this particular issue. And last night at the Joint Policing Committee, elected members were told that none of the commitments that Minister Flanagan made, none of the promises made, were ever materialised with the Loud Garda Division and that their budget has not seen a cent of an increase. Now, Now, when is Drogheda Garda Division going to receive the necessary Garda resources to tackle this ongoing future. The House will be aware that the uh, operational issues foreign on behalf of Angarda Siakana are under the leadership of, of the Garda Commissioner. I keep in close contact with Garda management team, uh, but the issue of resources is one for the Garda Commissioner himself. You, but can I say that I'm very much aware of the seriousness of the situation in Drogheda. The government is looking at the way local radio is funded and is exploring abolishing the annual broadcast levy that stations are forced to pay. Questioned on the matter in the Senate on Wednesday, Minister of State and Fine Gael TD for Me, the East, Helen McEntee, said government plans on the matter should be clear by the end of this year. While I appreciate that this bill is highly anticipated by the independent broadcasting sector and by many in this House and outside of it, I think you will agree, Cahir, look, that due to the complex nature of the matters contained in this bill, it is also of the utmost importance that proper due diligence is done and that it is robust. It is for this reason that it's currently still in the advanced drafting stage with the Parliamentary Council. I would also like to take this opportunity to, Cahir, look, to caution 
that the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland will still be required to make the revised levy order as the enactment of this bill, and as such, any reduction will not be immediate. It's expected that the bill will be finalised and published in quarter two of this year, at which point then it will be brought through the legislative process in both of these houses. In addition to support local and community radio, the Broadcasting Broadcasting Amendment Bill contains proposed amendments to the provision of Section 154 to allow for the creation of a new funding scheme that provides for the granting of bursaries to journalists in the local or the community radio stations. Housing waiting lists were raised in the Dáil on Tuesday. Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock raised the matter with Housing Minister Owen Murphy. Is it a fact that there is no database uh, for the rebuilding Ireland Home Loan Scheme and that the reason that there are 1,000 people and applicants still waiting for approval is the fact that there are duplicates of up on 50% right across multiple applications, particularly in the North East. And I'd ask, is that the situation as a fact? Because we have been told that, that there are multiple dual applications and that's the reason there's a delay in the approval uh, of the additional 1,000. The Rebuilding Ireland Home Loan is an incredibly uh, worthwhile and supportive product for people trying to buy their first home. Time and time again, deputies have come into the house to say it's not working. And today we see clearly, and you know clearly, that it is working, and it's working so well that actually it's worked better than anticipated, because the initial £200 million of, of funding was a tranche that was meant to be there for three years. We're only a year and a month into the operation of the scheme, and already we've seen hundreds of people approved and drawn down, and hundreds more waiting to draw down their loans. The Senate discussed the proposed Wills Bill, which, if passed, would establish a register of wills to prevent disputes over assets in the event of a family bereavement. Speaking in the House on Wednesday, Social Protection Minister and Fine Gael TD for Me the East, Regina Doherty, said the bill has good intentions but requires the backing of the Law Society. The spirit of the bill is incredibly well intended and I want to acknowledge that and so it's not the ideology behind it that we have an issue with. On first look, uh, obviously the establishment of a register of wills, as I can tell you my own colleagues uh, agree with, is in principle a good idea. The problem is, is that the bill before us today has a number of flaws and indeed exactly the same flaws that existed in the first iteration of the bill that was put forward in 2005 and the same flaws that were in the bill when you put it forward the second time in 2011. So we're here for the third time lucky with exactly the same flaws in the bill. Uh, When the proposals were first mooted in 2005, the Law Society expressed concerns that the proposed registration would be voluntary and so therefore would have very little effect because the registration wouldn't guarantee that the registered will is the last will and that registration isn't proof of validity of the will. The Dáil was told on Thursday that the IDA-designated site for Drogheda County Louth is actually in County Meath, and that therefore puts it in a different zone. Fine Gael TD Fergus O'Dowd sought a response on the issue from Business Minister Heather Humphreys. The problem we have in County Louth is that we have, uh, we're in the IDA region northeast, but the IDA region northeast uh, land for development happens to be in the mid IDA mid-east region, which is actually one field outside of the, the town boundary. So could I ask the Minister, could she address this issue? Would she arrange for the IDA executives in Loud and in Mead uh, to, to arrange a way in which this site will be marketed by both jointly uh, to ensure that we have people working uh, in the 
town. We have 7,000 commuters in Drogheda every single day. 7,000 individuals leave to go working outside of our town. They would love to work in Drogheda. We have the land. It's in the northeast region. It happens to be in County Mead. So we don't know who's marketing. And could you address that issue, please? Just to say, I will do that. I will ask the idea to look at that particular site, Deputy, that you have raised. Difficulties faced by people who want to build houses on their own land was raised in the Dáil on Tuesday. Independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick raised the matter with Housing Minister Owen Murphy. People in, in villages and people in rural areas can build on their own lands. So it's going on two or three years. Can you please tell me this coming to an end at, at, at some stage? The matter is, as you, as you explained to the Ciancorla, as I explained to the Dáil very recently, we are operating off the 2005 guidelines. We have been in negotiations with the Commission, uh, following on from the Flemish decree. Uh, much of the thinking that's been incorporated um, as a result of the Flemish decree made its way into the national planning framework, which has now been uh, put through the regional spatial economic strategies. But it's not say, true to say that uh, new homes aren't being approved, um, depending on, on, on local needs. That is happening. What we will have very shortly is the updated guidelines, but local authorities are working to the 2005 guidelines at the moment. Local authorities came in for criticism during the week for failing to spend money allocated for traveller accommodation. Minister of State and Fine Gael TD for Me, the West, Damien English, said the behaviour of some local authorities towards travellers is totally unacceptable. Over the past 18 months, I have visited many, many traveller accommodation sites, and to be frank, the conditions of them are extremely, extremely poor. They're, they're disgraceful, they're unacceptable. Uh, a lot of them are not out of sight and are very visible if you drive on some of our main roads. They're quite easy there, finding the ones to look at them. But people choose not to look, in many cases, and turn a blind eye. Yes, other cases are hidden away, and they're not where you put travel accommodation in the first place, but that's where they are. And I think, again, that highlights as well what the intention was behind some of those decisions too. So you'd have to question a lot of that as well. And these are decisions that are being made locally when it comes to site selection, and it's something we have to look at too. I find it very difficult to accept that when money's been made available uh, from the state, taxpayers' money, uh, that everyone's worked hard to contribute in the first place. Uh, it's been left unspent, and local authorities haven't drawn it down for whatever the reasons are, and there's different reasons there, but it's still not acceptable. Uh, and I think, um, I think the point was made by Senator Black again that just allocating money to an issue is not enough. Uh, and that's often been in the past. I think I've seen different governments, no matter who's in government, the decision often is also allocate the money, it'll, it'll fix it. It doesn't fix it. We have to follow through. And that contribution by Minister of State Damien English concludes our Loud Me the Rock this summary for this week. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the House of the Oireachtas Weekly Report. Thanks, Ken. Ken Murray will have another Loud Me the Oireachtas Report for us in around the same time on next Friday's programme. The reports are brought to you by the Houses of the Oireachtas. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we're trying to get a a response uh, from uh, the National Ambulance Service uh, again with little success, uh, but we've been hearing the concerns of uh, Declan Brannock, uh, Fianna Fáil TD in Louth, through uh, the bulletins. He's on the line with us now. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, There were five ambulances that weren't operational and at least two that had to be brought into the region from Dublin, you're saying? Uh, that's correct, Michael, and that was as of 9 o'clock last night. I don't know what the situation was later in the night, but the reality on this is that, you know, despite the fact that uh, I've raised this in the doll uh, and got assurances in relation to additional staff, the reality is this, Michael, that those two ambulances that had to be dispatched from Dublin last night, uh, normally that would be an eight-minute run uh, if the ambulance were available in the northeast or thereabouts, uh, on average an eight-minute run. Any blue light run from any of the ambulance stations in Dublin can take 55 minutes to get to the region. I'm reliably informed that one of those particular ambulance calls last night was a seizure. 
Uh, and th- my, while I don't want to get into the issue of management and uh, operational matters, my concern here is for the people of the northeast where assurance is given on hospital reconfiguration uh, happened in this region that we would have a superb ambulance service. Uh, you know, much talk was of this golden mm. hour and people having to mm. get to the right location at the right time. No, we were to have helicopters and everything, sure, at the time. Uh, uh, Absolutely. Mm. This is mm. not just a wake-up call to management uh, uh, in the service, but it's a siren call, a blue siren call to actually sit down, look at how the whole system of rostering is happening and uh, mm. provide the staff that are necessary, the trained staff that are necessary, and, and get down and do the business. Okay, if, example, you, you, you've gone way back in time, which is the background uh, and the current situation, as you say, is we've had these problems recently and there was the assurance uh, that Catherine Byrne gave on behalf of the Minister to you in the doll that uh, additional staff would be deployed, recruited for Monaghan and Casablanca, I think she said at the time, which would help solve a lot of these problems. I, I, from what I hear, we're going to see a lot more of these problems over the course of the next three weeks while four people are being recruited to the service. But what happened that led to this shortfall of staff currently? Well, my understanding is that it's a combination of uh, annual leave, sickness, and indeed uh, people not being available to the roster. Mm. Uh, uh, but there's vacant so positions. There's four vacancies, obviously, they're recruiting. Uh, absolutely, uh, and, and that is uh, being construed as, as, as additional vacancies. My understanding is that uh, you mentioned, for example, Cash Blaney uh, and Monaghan, they're there is what's called a hub, of which, for example, Dundalk is part of that hub. Mm. And the appointments are not necessary to frontline staff. Uh, they're been appointed to the hub, and therefore uh, there's an impression being given that there's additional staff, for example, going into Monaghan or going into Dundalk. That's not the case at all. Uh, the, the added issue here is that the, the, there seems to be plenty of vehicles available and reliably informed, for example, mm. that there are seven inter- intermediary care vehicles, uh, four in Ardy, one in Bainey, one in Navan, uh, and one in Cavan. Mm. And these vehicles are actually sitting up uh, outside uh, properties and not being utilised because uh, of the whole issue around who should respond, whether you have obviously your your, your frontline responders who get a text mm. uh, to go out to very, very serious issues, uh, Michael, that I, I don't believe in some instances oh, well, should have yeah, to respond yeah, to, yeah, but yeah. you have this whole area around whether you're an emergency medical technician, whether you're a paramedic mm. or an advanced paramedic, the reality here, as I'm hearing it, is that there needs to be a combination, uh, a combination of a paramedic and uh, uh, technicians uh, rostered uh, to to the ambulances mm. uh, and, and to spread the availability of staff in a proper way. I'm okay. also reliably informed, I say, Michael, that, that if you look at, the, at next week's roster, uh, uh, well, I haven't seen it, I'm reliably informed yeah. that if, they, if the roster as it stands uh, goes on next week, mm. there'll actually be no ambulance based in Monaghan. All that, right. to me, is not acceptable. And we, and okay. that's the reason I'm doing but, it to your station, is but, to bring these people to account. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Give no, a satisfactory uh, service uh, to the people. And, I, and I'm not suggesting for a moment uh, that you are wrong, uh, but I, I should mention that I am hearing that this is a, a temporary situation, that four people are b- about to be recruited, that the interview process is underway, and that in about three weeks from now, these problems should come to an end as a result of the recruitment of these personnel. Uh, 
But we are in this interim situation and we're going to see problems such as last night over the course of the next three weeks or so. Uh, That's what we're hearing. Uh, But it comes back to the question I put a a moment ago. Why are we in this situation? I mean, uh, surely uh, there isn't a sudden surge in demand for uh, 999 calls or, or for that matter, people didn't leave overnight without any notice. Um, the people on the ground uh, who are working in the service are saying that uh, management are not listening uh, to uh, how the problem can be resolved. It's not just about uh, additional staff, where that is important, Mm. uh, and additional vehicles. It's about, and I said it at the Mm. outset here, it's about how people are rostered. I mentioned on your programme previously, if you you could be rostered, living in, 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 in Donegal and rostered mm. uh, to be at an ambulance base in Dublin. And maybe that's why people aren't maybe, maybe that's why people aren't uh, availing of overtime because as I understand it as well, overtime is being offered uh, but uh, the overtime isn't being taken up by staff. Uh, naturally, if you have to if you have to drive uh, two or three hours to your place mm-hmm. uh, of work, uh, I'm quite sure uh, you have family commitments and other issues. And as 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 people are aging within that uh, ambulance cohort, I'm quite sure uh, to be asked to travel two or three hours uh, to a different uh, base is is not acceptable in this day and age, and not acceptable particularly as as, as people uh, grow older. I am I am not here to interfere as a mm-hmm. staffing mm-hmm. issues, but I'm here to say that I must. Uh, as an elected representative for this region, hold the ambulance service to account and live horse and get grass, which is what you have basically described, that it will be sorted out in a couple of weeks, mm. is no good to a person who is, as we all know, and we've all had to avail of the ambulance services. It, it sounds like a lifetime when you make that call, but if somebody is not going to get an ambulance where there's a seizure for 55 minutes when it should be delivered in eight minutes, that is not acceptable to the people of County Loud, Monaghan, Cavan or anywhere else. All right, got to leave it there. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil TD for Loud. Declan Brannock brings our programme to its conclusion today. Indeed, for this week, our time has run out on us. Hope you have a lovely weekend. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.